The following audio is from the chapel at Fishhawk. More information about the chapel at Fishhawk is available at www.thechapelfh.org. As we're going to learn today, the Bible is a big and difficult book, but it matters more than any other book in the world. So we're going to pray, and then we're going to jump into Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible that is all about the Bible. So Father, I thank you for the opportunity to come here and to read your word. The fact that we can open up this book that you have left us, that you have passed down, that you have ensured came to us, that we can read this, meditate on it, think about it, study it, chew it, discuss it. Help us, Lord, today. Help every person in here today to have a hunger and a passion to treasure your word. Lord, help us today, stir in our hearts today, a desire to see our lives changed. Lord, for those who are looking to hope, I pray that they would find you and your son in the midst of this amazing story. I pray that we would not approach the Bible in a way that bears us down with shame and guilt and fear, but we would see in your words the freedom and the love and the forgiveness we have in Jesus. And it's in his name we ask all these things. All God's kids said, amen. The Bible, fun facts. Uh, there are approximately 100 million Bibles sold per year. It is the best-selling book of all time. Uh, there are approximately 5 billion Bibles in circulation, give or take. Um, it is also, uh, my favorite fun fact, the most stolen book of all books. I thought that was so interesting when I discovered that. And most likely, they think it's because it's the Gideons. The Gideons put them in all the hotels, and then people steal them. And the Bible is the only thing that I, as a pastor, will allow you to steal from here. So if you want to steal, if you're a kleptomaniac, welcome to the chapel. Glad you're here. Feel free to steal a Bible. Um, it is yours. It's our gift to you. If you want a nice leather Bible, you can steal one from the lost and found. It just may have someone else's name on it. Um, the Bible has shaped so many people. Um, it's there's the number of quotes about the Bible are just staggering. Uh, William Tyndale, he produced the first printed and edited version of the New Testament in English. He was burned at the stake for putting the Bible in English. And that's remarkable. So this Bible that we have in a language that most of us know somewhat decently, um, the guy who put it in English got killed for it, for translating it into the language of the, the common folk, you and I. The Bible... Uh, Denzel Washington says, love this because I love me some good Denzel just, despite some questionable roles. I read the Bible every day. It makes me love Denzel more and makes me want to ask him questions about Jesus on Twitter. Um, uh, Augustine of Hippo says, the Holy Scriptures are our letters from home. I like that thought, that these are letters that God has written us to shape us and to mold us and to draw us into his presence. Um, Theodore Roosevelt, the president, said, a thorough knowledge of the Bible is worth more than a college education. Uh, if you're a student, don't use that against your parents. It won't work. I tried. Okay. Um, Unless, oh, here's one of my favorite, the philosopher, the magnanimous Mr. T from the A-Team says, hmm, on my downtime, I take a shower or listen to the Bible on tape. Was that an okay impersonation or bad? I'll stick with my Sunday job. Okay. Um, the weird part about that quote is that he says, I take a shower or listen to the Bible on tape. So A, like, some of you don't even know what a tape is, okay? It's this little rectangle thing with two holes that you can rewind with a pencil eraser. It, it makes more sense if you just ask your parents. Okay, anyway, um, Johnny Cash. I'm not going to do his voice impression because I don't know how that goes. Um, I, re I read novels, but I also read the Bible and study it, you know? And the more I learn, the more I get excited. I love that. 
And then Charles Spurgeon, one of my fave dead Christian dudes, dead here, living there, says, a Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. It's, I just want to say that again, a Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. Now, when I was a new believer, I read that quote and I was like, oh man, I need to have a Bible that's falling apart. Um, so, uh, as someone who didn't know the rules of church, churchdom, um, however we want to call that, uh, we had Bibles, and I didn't bring, I meant to bring it today, and I forgot it, and I'm so upset. I have my very first Bible. It was um, a student Bible from 1996. I got this a few years before I became a follower of Jesus. Someone gave it to me because God was chasing me down like a bloodhound, and it said, uh, student NIV study Bible, and the student was in hot pink like somebody had painted it with a paintbrush. Some of you had this Bible. And I became a follower of Jesus, and at the church where God snatched me up, our youth was put in the back of the building. So, like, there was the adult space, and then they put the, the youth, the students, in the back of the building with their own street, their own entrances, because they didn't like us. Um, but it was cool, because there was three stories with a giant balcony. And I did not know the rules of Christianity, which I've told you guys. I've confessed to this many, many times. One of the rules I didn't know was that the Bible is a book that we are supposed to physically be kind to. Is that me? Oh, hey, hey, should I grab another one? Grab the black one. They're all black. Just kidding. Orange one, black one. Got it. Here we go. Oh. Jesus, take the wheel. There we go. Let's try that. Corey, I love you so much. I'm going to leave those there. Okay, we're going to pray. Father, I thank you for this day. Lord, forgiveness is one of your utmost things. Let the tech team forgive me. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, here we go. We got to get back to this because it's going to get ridiculous if we don't turn the ship back to Jesus. Um, so, uh, so I took my Bible one day, and we went up to the third story, and I didn't know anything about Christianity, and it's the Bible I have today, and we wanted to play a game whose Bible could bounce further when dropped from said third story. I didn't know this was a bad idea. See, all the former Catholics <gasps> gasped, okay? Um, uh, so we dropped them, and we had someone down there measuring, saying, one foot, six inches, you won, you won, you won. And then we had the youth leader that loved the Bible come up to us and say, this, this is not okay. And it was one of those cartoon moments where the head turned red in the neck, and it just boiled, and then steam was like, Psh! I mean, that's probably not what happened, but it felt that way. So as this lady is telling me, you, you can't bounce your Bibles off the third story floor, all I had in my mind was the phrase that, that my pastor told me to ask people. When someone said something about the Bible or something that you should do or shouldn't do, my pastor just instilled in me, you, you give them the Bible. If it's a follower of Jesus, if they're coming to condemn you, judge you, whatever, you say, here's the Bible, show me the verse, right? So 17-year-old me, youth leader, do not drop Bibles. You are not allowed to drop Bibles. Now, it could have been a verse, and I wouldn't have known because I had not yet finished the Bible. It took me a few months to do that. So I said, I, I had no idea. Can you show me? Now, if you go looking in the Bible for a verse about not dropping the Bible, you're not going to find one because it's not in here. Now, does that mean I want the teenagers at the chapel throwing Bibles off of the roof? No, because cars and children but it's not a biblical command. Now, should we honor the Bible? Are there things not in the Bible that the Bible implies? Absolutely. And today, today I want us to look at what the Bible is for 
why we ought to honor the Bible, live by the Bible, believe in the Bible, read the Bible. And that's why we're in Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible. So here we go. Verse 1. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Everyone say law of the Lord. That was unenthusiastic. I'll give you a pass. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. How much of their heart? Whole heart. Okay, you're with me. Here we go. But walk, uh, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. Here's some old word. I, you have commanded your precepts, your teachings, to be kept diligently. Oh, that my way be steadfast in keeping your statutes, your rules. Then I shall not be put to shame. Having my eyes fixed on all your commandments, I will praise you with an upright heart. When I learn your righteous rules, I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. The Bible has so many rules. Um, Depending on how you categorize them, approximately 600 to 639 rules in the Old Testament. Do this, don't do that. Do this, don't do that. And if you've had any experience, if this is your first time at a church gathering, you may not know this, but if you've had any experience with church gatherings before, you know that we are good at rules, depending on um, what church you go to. Now, I, I did something today. It was a little bit of a social experiment. I wanted to see how much I could change with a strip of cardstock. So for those of you who saw me come in earlier, um, I put this right here under my collar, and it looks like a Catholic priest. And the reason I'm doing it is because I've got priest envy. One of my uh, friends, I have a few Catholic friends, and they told me when they wear the collar, people are nicer to them. And I thought, I want the chapel family to be nicer to me, so I'm going to wear the collar. However, uh, in walking around this morning, um, one thing became very, very clear. I was learning some of your religious backgrounds by your facial expression when you saw a collar underneath a Volcom shirt. Okay, so let's be clear. There's a Volcom shirt. Um, one of our English couples from England uh, referred to me affectionately. They call me the vicar in the morning. It's one of my favorite Sunday morning things. I, I come here not to preach, but so that someone will come to me and say, good morning, vicar. And I say, oh, good morning. How do you do? Cup of tea, crumpet. I don't know, you know. Um, uh, but but it's, it's this idea that what I wear all of a sudden begin to, turn your faces. In, in particular, there are variations of Christianity. We have these different tribes, and it's very unfortunate because we are one church. We should be unified, capital C Church. Every church in this area that espouses the name of Jesus, we should love each other, work together to push back the darkness and bring God's forgiveness to the world. But we don't often because we like our subsets of rules. The rules are good as long as they're God's rules, and God's rules have a very clear purpose in the Bible. God's rules are meant to show you and show me that we actually don't measure up. If you approach the Bible as all of the rules that you have to keep in order for God to love you, then you've actually approached the Bible missing the main point of the whole story. While the Bible is a big book, while it is dense and the pages are thin, it is made up of 66 little books, letters, and poetry collections by more than 40 authors written over a thousand years. So it's not even just one book, and it is hard to read. This author, he wants to walk in the law of the Lord. He wants to keep the God's God's testimonies. He wants to, uh, he wants to love and keep diligently the precepts. He has his eyes fixed on God's commandments. It is good to fix our eyes on God's word from beginning to end. 
There are some parts of the Bible that are confusing, some parts that are difficult. Some of you are in the middle of New Year's resolutions. I pray, I don't care if you're doing a 100 push-up challenge, new resolution, lose this many pounds, whatever. I am passionate that you would become a Bible-loving, Bible-reading person. And I know it's hard. And we all do the same thing. We go to the first book of the Bible, January 1, Genesis 1. Boom, Adam and Eve. Some of you who have been walking with Jesus for a long time, you've literally read that so many times because you New Year's resolute every, every year. You're like, man, I'm a pro at Genesis 1 to 3. I have no idea what happens until Jesus comes, though, after that. Because it gets hard. Genesis, it's all of these stories about people building a tower, why, and then languages shattered, and then Abraham comes. Abraham then tries to sell his wife to a stranger. That's a bad way to do marriage. And then we have Joseph in the Technicolor Dreamcoat, the musical some of you have seen. And then you go to Exodus. You only know Exodus' first three chapters because you saw Charlton Heston or Prince of Egypt. So you know that story. You know, let my people go, Ninja Twirl, Staff, Red Sea, boom. But then some of you make it into Exodus and you think, I have no idea what's going on. And then you see the Ten Commandments and say, I've seen those somewhere. Well, they tore them down. And then you make it to Leviticus, 101 ways to kill a goat. You have no idea what this book is about unless you were born in deep Lithia. And then all of a sudden, yeah, I just, I like this. It's a, that was like a collective aha moment. Like someone had to get the gerbil clicking on the wheel and then they're like, oh, yeah, you got it. You got it. Because you're not going to bring two turtle doves here and kill them in my parking lot. I will call the cops. But this is Leviticus. It says, kill these types of doves, kill this type of bull, goat, etc. for this different sin. So what do we do? How do we know what parts of the Bible are for us and what the story of the Bible is? This is why so many of us get it wrong. Because we look at the Bible and we take a little piece out and say, I'm going to figure out how this fits in my life rather than taking the whole of the Bible and asking, how does my life fit into this massively beautiful narrative of God's pursuit of me? Some of us approach the Bible as a good advice or a basic instructions before leaving earth. See, I knew somebody had heard that. They went to Sunday school. It's not basic instructions before leaving earth. It's a beautiful story meant to show us that the Bible is not a record of perfect people earning God's love, it's a record of saved sinners loved by a perfect God. Even this whole psalm that is about God's word, about loving his commands, the commands, the law of God, the Tanakh we saw in the beginning of that video, they set up a grid and a story, a plot line, that are meant to point us forward. But so often we just take principles that we like and we just say, this one's for me, and we put it on a coffee mug or a bumper sticker. The story of the Bible is so rich and beautiful. The reason I love the Old Testament is because I love acknowledging how broken I am. This, this author is saying, I, I look at them diligently. I want to pay attention to your law. I want to fix my eyes on this book. And here's why it's good for us. When we fix our eyes on this book, and we don't just fix our eyes on one verse over and over, we don't just read Proverbs 12 times a year, we don't just read the Psalms, we don't just read the New Testament. When we learn to fix our eyes on this book, we begin to build a narrative that takes us on a journey to see our need for God. The more that I read the over 600 laws in the Old Testament, the more I realize how short I fall, how much I fail. But what brings me comfort is throughout the Old Testament stories, I see failure after failure after failure in God giving patience and mercy, patience and mercy, patience and mercy. I mean, think about the reality of some of these Old Testament people that we have often idolized, that we have sung songs about. Father Abraham had many. 
Those kids all went to Sunday school. We, we look at these people and we call them heroes of the faith. I'll tell you what, if I try to sell my wife to another man like Father Abraham, she is never calling me a hero again. I mean, that's, that's just flat out. Or it, it, David and Bathsheba, like killed the giant, great man of faith, man after God's own heart, wrote a bunch of songs. Also, looking at another man's wife, not a good idea. Why did God keep pressing in, and why did God have these stories recorded of these broken, messed up people, and God saw the story of David, saw the story of Abraham, saw the story of pretty much everyone in the Bible, save 1.5 people. Everyone in the Bible, the Bible shows their flaws and their mistakes. Jesus has none, and the only other person in the Bible where they don't show it in story is Daniel, but the Bible goes out of its way to say, and Daniel was a sinner. So the Bible lets us know Daniel's still not in the category. He's a sinful person who doesn't always do what is right. But the majority, 99.9% of the characters in the Bible are train wrecks of humans that God says, I chose you and I love you. And he gives us his law, the book of Galatians says, to reveal within us the areas where we look to something else to satisfy us that is not God. This is the essence of what sin is. This is why it's good to look in the law, to be convicted and say, I fall short. Isn't it amazing how much Jesus loves me? The reason I love looking into the law of God is because as I do it, I realize I'm way worse off than I ever knew. And the worse I am, that means that Jesus loves me that much more to bring me from there to God. We do this with our children. I love giving the law. Now, I, my parenting uh, style is pretty basic. When they are hard-hearted, they get the law. The Old Testament is a lot of law. Do this, don't do that. That way they understand where they, are, where they fall short. New Testament is how Jesus fulfills the law and gives grace and forgiveness and mercy. So hard-hearted, they get law. Broken-hearted, they get grace in my family. I it made a choice. I don't know if it's a good or bad life choice. If you're a child psychologist, you can tell me. But I gave my oldest son technology, a phone specifically. He's been begging for one since he was two because when he was two coming home from VPK, he's like, oh, my friends have one. No, that's an exaggeration, but it's basically that. Um, all these kids have phones nowadays. They hop off the bus and they're like, here I am tweeting. I'm getting friend requests from my nine-year-old son's friends on social media. And I'm like, uh, I don't think so. A little creepy. Uh, it's, it's bugging me. So my son gets this technology, the phone. It's the freedom. But with it came the law. Here are the rules. First off, you get this app where I track everywhere you go and everything you see. I know when he's riding his bike from the park over to this house. I know where he's at at all times unless he's duct taping his phone to a carrier pigeon. I know what he's looking at on kids' YouTube, and I will not give him regular YouTube. He asked for social media. I said, sure, you can be social with the media called your mouth and ears, which means talk to people in person. Well, my friends have Facebook. Well, they're not 13, and when you're 13, you still can't have it because you live in my house. You can have it when you're 22 and move out. I'm assuming that adolescence is going to get stretched even longer by the time he grows up, unfortunately. But I, I give him laws and rules to guide him. But kids, they always find a way. Find a way. And then some of the things, I just it helps me understand, how do I give him the rules and guidelines for behaving online a particular way? Because this, this app I have, it helps me manage and navigate and see everything he's doing. And I don't understand some of what he's doing. If you're a parent of a young human in here, please tell me after service what in the world the word derpy means. Because my son has Googled everything. Derpy frog, derpy Pokemon, derpy dad. I can't figure it out. I think it means goofy or something in there. 
So if one of you are more parentally savvy than I am, please let me know because I don't know if I want to or do not want to be a derp. Um, anyway, it's probably a negative thing because I've seen pictures of frogs, like a eh, derpy frog. But I'm watching, I'm tracking, and I'm giving him the law. And now, the best thing about giving your child technology is this. When they break a rule, it's the easiest disciplining ever. I don't have to be creative anymore. I just say, your phone, I'm locking it. And I can lock his phone from my phone anywhere in the world. I could be in Dubai drinking tea with my Indian friends, say, locked, you're out. And it's amazing. Technology. And now, today, because yesterday, he said one thing back to me, and I'm just, I'm not in the mood lately to tolerate talking back. So I say, yep, oh, oh, phone gone, locked, boop. No grounded, your kid, no kids tomorrow, no friends. So today he comes in and says, Daddy, if I'm a good, 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 good boy, not that many goods, but a couple goods, can I play with my friends if I'm a good boy in chapel? So he's here right now, sitting somewhere. My hope is that he will be a good boy. Because it's good to be good. The Bible talks about being good. But goodness will not earn him more of my love because guess how much of my love he already has? All of it. I would die for him. I would live for him. I'd die for him. I'd lay down anything for him. No matter what he does, I'll never let him go. And I'm a fallible fallen human. God, with his infinite power, infinite wisdom, infinite strength, sees how much we fail in following his law and says, but I love you. I'm here for you. And so much so that in Jeremiah, God says, I know that you break my law so much that it, I will write my law on your heart. So that now within us, the spirit that wrote the law will guide and direct us. We call this the Holy Spirit in the Christian faith. Do you love God's law this way? We're going to keep reading. I'm going to read a bunch of verses really fast with all the caffeine I can dig out. Verse 11 of 119. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. If you want to defeat a sin, one of the easiest ways is by taking God's word and applying it to that particular sin. So if you have the sin of anger, Google online verses about anger. Memorize those verses. In the NIV, that verse 11 says, Lord, I have hid your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Hide God's word in your heart so that when you're about to sin, you can say that back out loud and apply that word to your situation. Uh, verse 25 of 119, my soul clings to the dust Give me life according to your word. Coming to God's word gives us life. Too often we look to other things to give us life. We think that uh, our, our power or our fame or our money or our things will give us life. This author sees the reality that if we want life, we must come to God's word and live according to God's word. Verse 33, teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. God doesn't want part of your heart. He wants your whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in them. Do you delight in, your, in God's commandments? Is your Bible dusty? Is your Bible app unused? Or do you have a delight about it? Now, here's what I mean by delight. We all know what delight is. Um, I'm a particularly lately a food delighter. So, for example, if you're hungry right now, Raise your hand if you're a little bit hungry. Anyone a little bit hungry? Okay, this is going to work great. Let's say you're hungry right now, and you're thinking, ah, Ryan needs to hurry up because I'm hungry. I want to beat the Methodists to the Golden Corral. That's what you're thinking in your head. Imagine right now, pizza, perfect, slight crisp on the crust, 
fluffy with air pockets inside the exterior. Mozzarella cheese, not the fake stuff that's like cardboard, but the stuff that stretches the length of your arm. And whatever your favorite toppings, I'm going to go for some bacon, pepperoni, and Italian sausage. And you take one piece out, and the cheese clings to the pieces next to it because it was cooked so perfectly and magnificently. And then you take the pizza out, and you fold it in half because if you don't, the crust will fall down, and you'll have to go down. And you fold it and eat it. Oh. Right now, I just made like 90% of you covet pizza. Some of you are on your New Year's Eve diet thing. Sorry, not sorry. You should never quit pizza. Pizza has never quit you. But, but that sensation you get right before you bite into a pizza, like right then, and we all know what it feels like. It's almost like your tongue is floating because the saliva is pushing it up. It's like the chlorine floating thing in the pool. It's like, feed me now, and you just eat it. I have this fear that too many of us don't approach the Bible that way at all. And you say, well, I've tried. It is so, it's so long. It's boring. And you won't say it because you want to be nice to a pastor. But I will say it for you. I see it in the eyes and in the dust collections. The Bible is boring for many, many people. The amazing thing about my son's phone is I can see how long he's been on which apps. So I'm like an hour and a half on kids' YouTube and 30 seconds in the Bible, I'm failing as a dad. So I got to lock down this one, open up that app. No, that doesn't work because that's only law. What has to happen is what's happening to this guy and what this psalmist is saying. God, change my heart. God, fix my eyes. God, give me delight. We won't have those things until we understand that God's word is a story that's bringing us into a relationship with a Savior who loves broken, hurting, needy people. The more you understand your need for God, the more this book becomes a treasure of delight. The more you will be found salivating over a piece of pizza like this book, just wanting to eat it more. I'm going to tell you about one of my marriage fails that I think my wife is going to hold against me forever. Most of, my, uh, of our relationship, I've been a pastor. I've been in ministry. But um, I did have a real job before. I was a, um, I've done other jobs. I was a, a retail manager for a store. Um, I worked in biotech and pharmaceuticals. And one of the things that I love about being a pastor is that literally um, I answer emails, I help counsel people, but I get to read this book during my work day. And I get paid for it. It's like the most ridiculous, amazing secret. Don't tell anybody because I don't want this gig to be busted, okay? It's incredible. But when I was working in biotech, I'm working 40, 50 hours a week or the retail industry, I'm exhausted, which is part of the reason why I don't put a bunch of expectations on you guys, because um, I didn't just go from seminary into churches. I've talked to a lot of pastors, and they say, well, I just can't get my people to volunteer. I just want them to volunteer 10 hours and read their Bible one hour a day, and then they'll be great human beings. I tell them, look, you don't understand. Go get a normal job. These people are working 55 hours. They come home. They're exhausted. They've got to make dinner, clean the house. There's still laundry. And then you want them to come serve at your church campus for 10 hours. Then on top of that, you want them to read the Bible an hour every day. There's only 24 hours in a day, and they've got to sleep sometime. And pastors say, well, I do it. I'm like, yeah, because you get paid to do it. We are tired people. This is when I was in one of my grumpy working not in a church phases. And I began to see, though, the importance. So instead of saying I need to read my Bible more, I thought, Okay, I need to look at how much God loves me more in light of how wretched I am. Because when my wife chose me, it, it was clear as crystal. If you know my wife and you know me, you know that I, I dated up, which means she dated down. I mean, technically I'm up because I'm taller. 
I'm just talking on the purely carnal level of rating people. I'm so grateful for it. Makes me kinder as a human, I think, to her. My God, I can't believe you would choose me. You are such an amazing human. You love me so much. If someone attacks me, she will stand up for me. When I fall down, she helps pick me up. When some, when, when some of you send me nasty things, she encourages me. Man, she's the best. Makes me love her more. So in, instead of just saying, oh, I've got to love her because it's the thing to do, you know, happy wife, happy life, I've got to do it. Like That's really going to get the marriage engine going. I've got to do it. Every time I hear a spouse refer to their spouse as the old ball and chain, I think you're, you're, you're calling your spouse a prison. Do they love that? Is that like your love language? Hey, baby, I love the way you trap me. That's not how you probably got your first date with her. I don't think anybody got their first date by going around saying, hey, I'm looking for someone to confine me and make me feel claustrophobic in a relationship. Any takers? No, we... I love you. You're sweet. You're kind. You're so beautiful. I love you. Let's go date at the Cheesecake Factory. Yay. We do this with God, though. Oh, God, I've, I've got to read my Bible. If I don't, then I don't know what will happen. Someone came into the chapel this morning. I hadn't seen them for a while, but they know me well enough to know that I'm not the pastor that says, you know, you haven't come in here. God's going to strike you with lightning. And I'm, I'm pretty logical. If God's going to hit you with lightning, he's got good enough aim to get you and not me, okay? But they stood at the door and said, hey, hey, I'm back. Oh, and they put their toe in. I'm like, ooh, watch out, there it is. They felt like that maybe they'd been gone too long, therefore God wouldn't hold them, embrace them, love them, accept them. But God does because of what Jesus has done, not what, where we have fallen short. Do you love God in the way that compels you to want to know more about this story? The reason that these authors dove into this word is because they were living in the middle of the plot. They said, we know we're messed up. We've seen us choose non-God things over and over. We've served this God. We've served this uh, aspect of living. We've disobeyed God, yet God has patiently said, I'm sending someone who's going to save you. I'm sending someone who's going to save you. I'm going to put my spirit inside of you. I'm going to change you from the inside out. Wait for it. And then Jesus came. This is the story of the Bible. It is full of good advice. It is full of amazing rules and how God has hardwired the universe. When I talk to businessmen who are asking businessmen and women, they say, you know, what do you have for business? I say, look, read the book of Proverbs. Even if you're not a follower of Jesus, the book of Proverbs and many precepts in the Bible teach us the way God hardwired the world. So if you do these things, it will generally go better for you. If you save, it's better than just spending frivolously. But that's not the point of the Bible. The point of the Bible is to get us to Jesus. And the more you see his love for you, the more you'll be enraptured to chew on this book. I can't manufacture it for you, but I think you probably know areas of your life where you've set up walls to prevent this. We have an inordinate amount of time in certain areas of our life. And I'm not going to be the pastor that says, you've got to turn off your TV and get to reading the Bible. Because if you're not in love with Jesus and God, if you haven't pressed in and asked the question, how, does, how do I fit into God's story rather than trying to fit God's story into your corral? If you haven't gotten there, the Bible will beat you down. It'll become dreary and boring and dusty. Now, I get it. It's an old book. I get it that I tend nerdy. That's why I'm putting up resources for you. These videos, the one you watched two minutes of, they're five-minute videos. There's six of them. They're on the Facebook page. I just posted them yesterday, so like the re most recent post. I'm going to put them on the home page of the chapel website. The Bible Project guys have made these amazing videos. They're like five to nine minutes. 
that help us understand the context of the Bible story. These six videos in particular teach you how to read the Bible. If you've never read a book since high school, you can watch these six videos and be well equipped to read the Bible. And they're drawn with pictures. For those of you whose last book you read was The Giving Tree, you can do this. I promise you, it will begin to change your life. Part of what we have to do, though, is learn how to stir up our affections for Jesus and God. That's why when people say, you know, how do you grow spiritually? I get this question, I want to grow, I want to grow, I want to grow. I try to simplify things down. Because I could say, go read your Bible and pray more and get in a community group. All great things. But if your heart isn't tilted toward God, those things will just be extra works you're adding on. So that's why I usually tell people, what makes you love Jesus more? What stirs up your heart and just makes you love Jesus? Is it worship, singing, preaching, walking, running, talking to God? Whatever it is that stirs your heart for Jesus, do more of that. And whatever robs your heart of affection for Jesus, do less of that. So maybe you just love watching a particular show, but you ask yourself the question, does this show rob me of affection for Jesus or give me more? Maybe for you, that's one thing that you could say, I can pull this out. Maybe for you, it's your job. And you're thinking, my job sucks life and affection for God out of me. Might be scary. Maybe it's time to begin praying about a career change or a new job. What matters most to you is what will shape the trajectory of your life, not only for this life, but for eternity. And the more we can learn to have affection for God and fix our eyes in this book, get in this book as much as you can. Don't listen to just what I say. Read this book. The more your life will be put on a path of gratitude for all that God has done for you. I pray that we have Bibles that are falling apart in this chapel. And I know that like only 9% of you have an actual Bible. I pray that the Bible app is one of the most clicked on apps on your phones. If we learn anything from Jesus' Jesus's encounter with religious people in Luke 24, it shows us that it's possible to know the Bible, read the Bible, study the Bible, memorize the Bible, and be far from God. I don't want a bunch of people who know everything about the Bible but don't know God. I want a family of God who deeply loves him and knows him and is learning the Bible one step at a time. I pray that would be you this year. You would find it the life-giving book that I have found it to be, that your heart would be stirred up and your eyes would be transfixed on it. I wouldn't be anything without seeing God in the pages of his word that he left for us. I pray you find that same comfort, direction, and joy. Let's pray. Father, you are good. You are good. Lord, show each person here this morning how much you love them, like a first date. Remind them that in the bottom of their pit, you met them there and you loved them there. That you reach out when they weren't reaching up. Lord, remind everyone in here that when they're at the end of their rope, that's the closest they are to letting go and grabbing your hand. Lord, enrapture us, take a hold of us, stir in us a desire to read your word, a desire to love you and to know you. And God, if they do nothing else, if we do nothing else today, God, I pray that those curious would at least 
go watch two of those videos and say, I'm going to at least see if reading this book is something that I can get into. God, unfold your story before their eyes. In Jesus' name, all God's kids said, amen.